Hey, Harvest, how we doing? Happy New Year. Grab your Bibles, and in the New Testament, find your way to the Gospel of John. We are going to be in the Gospel of John for really the next three months. I didn't know this until I was studying the past couple weeks, but traditionally in church history, one of the things that the church does is it studies or it studies Advent, the Christmas season, the gift of um, Christ, Emmanuel, with us. If you need Bibles to pass, uh, there's guys coming down the aisles, just raise your hand. They will get a Bible to you. Um, but it's interesting. So we go from Christmas, and then in a few months, we're going to have Easter, and we're going to celebrate everything that God uh, accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross, that Christ bore our wrath, that he conquered death. That season in between Christmas and Easter, historically for the church, has been a time when you study the life of Christ. It actually has a name. It's called the epiphany or the appearing or the details of Christ's life. Now, that's not why we picked this series, but we're going to be in John up until the Easter season. Here's why we picked this series. First of all, one of the things that we're committed to as a church is to teach you the full counsel of God's word. And if you look back on 2022, uh, we began the year studying uh, a book that Paul wrote, an epistle. Uh, it was Ephesians. And then we went through Easter and we studied two Old Testament prophets, which we'd really never done before, Haggai and Malachi. And then during the summer, we went through some Psalms. We studied some things on the life of Christ. Every year, we're going to spend some time in the Gospels focusing on our Savior. We just, that's a commitment that we have. And then this fall, we were in the Old Testament again, studying the Ten Commandments. And as we come into the new year with everything that's going on in our world and a fastly changing world I just think sometimes that it's good to just focus our attention on Jesus. Would you agree? So we're just going to focus and center our attention uh, on Jesus Christ for the next few months. We're going to be going through the book of John uh, verse by verse. We will not finish it before Easter, I promise. We're going to take our time. We're probably going to get through about the sixth chapter. And then what we'll do is we'll probably pick it up again from there maybe next winter or somewhere down the line, kind of like we did with our Hebrews series five years ago that we've never finished. It'll be something like that, okay? But our, our goal is to go through John over the course of the next couple of years. Here's the second reason why we're going through John, because I know what's coming next after Easter. We're going to do a series coming out of Easter on how people change. How do you really experience life altering change, victory over addictions, victory over habits, victory over anger, those type of things. Who's, who's interested in that? Like, like I'm thinking beginning of the year, my mind kind of always drifts to New Year's resolutions. Like, like what are some of the things that I want to see um, in 2023? And, and I come back to a resolution that I've used in other years. I want to be less intense. I want less conflict. I want to get along with people better. But well, 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 how do you accomplish lasting change? Well, we're going to study that for several weeks this spring after Easter. But here's the truth. If we jump right into a series on sanctification or how people change, without starting with a foundation of who Jesus is and our Savior, all we're doing is behavior modification. If Jesus is not the foundation for how we change, then all we're doing is running you through a process without a foundation, and it'll crumble. Those type of changes don't last. So in the book of John, hopefully we're going to be setting the foundation for what follows this Easter. I, my, my prayer for the church is really simple. I hope that 
2023, I got to get used to saying that, right? 2023 is a season that we look back on both personally as a church and we say, boy, it was in 2023 where God did this or I saw this change or I experienced this victory. So to lay the foundation for that, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at our Savior right at the beginning of the year. Well, there's four Gospels. Why do we choose John? Well, let me just kind of give you a little bit of background. Of the four Gospels, Mark was the first Gospel that was written. It's actually not John Mark's account. He was the author. It's referred to as Peter's Gospel. It's Peter's story. So what happens is Jesus dies. He rises again. He tells his disciples, or go and make disciples throughout the world. Spread the news of the Gospel. And knowing Peter and his personality, he's like, I'm on it. And he writes a quick, short, action-packed, 16-chapter gospel that is, Jesus did this, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this. It's very fast-paced, very fast-moving, not a lot of emphasis on his teaching, more of what he did. And that was the first gospel that was circulated in the early church, Peter's gospel. And then what followed was Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. Now, you need to know the authors were writing with intent. They had a purpose. They were making an argument. Matthew writes his gospel primarily to a Jewish audience. And the argument that he's making is simply this, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was promised in the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the promised Messiah. So throughout the gospel of Matthew, if you were to go through it chapter by chapter, what you're going to see repeated over and over again by Matthew is, Jesus did this so that the prophecy would be fulfilled. He did this so that because Scripture said this. He is constantly making an argument that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Luke writes from a different perspective. Luke is a historian. Luke is a doctor. So if you were to go through Luke's gospel, Luke is making an argument that Jesus is actually God incarnate, God in the flesh. So when Luke starts his Gospel, he starts with a genealogy. He spends a lot of time giving the background to Jesus' birth. He tells you all about Bethlehem and gives much, much detail on God becoming flesh. And then when we get to the end of his gospel and we look at the crucifixion, he's giving the details of Christ's suffering in a level of detail that the other authors really don't touch or address. He's making an argument. And interesting, Luke's writing to one guy. He's writing to a Roman by the name of Theopolis. He wrote two books. He wrote the story of Jesus, that's Luke, and then he gave the early history of the church, that's the book of Acts. And the purpose for his writing, he states it. He says, I'm writing this orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis, that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So he's saying, listen, I'm going to make an argument that Jesus was God, but he was also God in the flesh, and I want you to be certain about the things that you believe. These three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're often called the synoptic Gospels. They follow the same pattern. They record many of the same events. If you were to put them side by side, you would see that they follow a chronology. They're orderly. And then there's the book of John. John just kind of writes. He doesn't care what order he places the stories in. He kind of bounces around from beginning to end. The best way that I could describe it is John is like you're sitting, you're having dinner, maybe you're enjoying a couple Diet Cokes, and um, 
Somebody's just telling you about their best friend. Let me just tell you about my best friend. Oh, and then he did this, and oh, he, he, he did this, and oh, let me tell you about this. And it might not follow an order, but he's just telling you about his best friend. So a question that I would have for you, if someone were to write your story, who would be the best person? Who has the best viewpoint from which to write? Well, for, for me, if someone were to write my story, not that even I would want to read it, but if someone were to write my story, that would be probably Kristen. Like, we've been married 40 years. She knows me better than anyone else. It would be Kristen that would write that story. If there were multiple stories written on my life, I would trust her account more than anyone else's account. There's another guy that goes to our church, um, Brett Lyle. Brett Lyle has been my friend since I was one day old. We were born in the same hospital in Elmhurst, Illinois. I was born on July 24th. He was born on July 25th. We have literally been friends our entire life. Now, now he could write the story of my life, probably second best to Kristen. You wouldn't want to read that. He knows stuff, okay? So, but, but I'm just telling you, if you were wanting to understand your Savior, there's absolutely no one better to write the story than John. He was Jesus' best friend. He was, he was closest. He was the one that when Jesus was dying, Jesus from the cross entrusted his mom to John. So the gospel of John is not like the other gospels. It doesn't flow in a chronology. It bounces back and forth, but it gives you an in-depth perspective of Jesus that I think is unique amongst the gospels. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that John didn't write with purpose. He did. He says in John 21, 25, at the end of the book, now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John is saying, I could write volumes about my friend, but I'm picking and choosing the things that I include in my story about Jesus very, very carefully. I'm driving a point. Well, what is the point that he's driving? He says in John 20, verse 30, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And then the very next, uh, sent, or the very next verse, he gives why he wrote the Gospel of John. But these things are written, get this, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And here's what I like about his explanation of why he wrote his Gospel. He's not just writing so that you will believe, but he's saying, I want you to believe, but I also want you to have life. I want you to experience transformation. I want there to be change. John isn't writing just to educate you. He's writing to transform you. That's my prayer as we go through this book. The big idea this morning is simply this. Jesus demands a choice. And before we jump into the text, can I do this? Can I just pray for us? Father, I thank you for um, this new year. I thank you for the opportunity to gather together um, this morning. And I know for many it's early and it's been busy with holidays and the new year, but I would pray that you would just grab our attention with your word this morning. I pray that we would see Jesus over the course of today, these next few weeks, in a, in a new light, in a new way. There would not just be information, but it would be information that moves us. Thank you for your son. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's jump in. We're going to pick it up right in verse 1, John 1, 1. It says this. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. I want you to notice how John starts his gospel. No Bethlehem, no genealogies, no background, no Elizabeth, nothing about Jesus' birth, just jumps right into the narrative. He, he begins, and what he does in these first four verses, he begins to lay an argument that, quite honestly, is incredibly profound. John was a fisherman, but by the time he writes this later in life, under the insp inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the argument that he makes in these first 14 verses is actually pretty radical, and it's pretty brilliant. Here's the first point if you're keeping notes. He makes two radical claims. The first one that he makes is that Jesus is the word. He is the word. He is the logos. He is central to everything. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Okay? The, the argument that he's making is very specific to what's going on in his culture in that day. I want you to notice that he says, he was God. The, the, the Greeks that are kind of the cultural background to which John is writing against the Greeks and then the Romans, they believed in a multiplicity of gods. They had invented gods for everything. Gods were kind of up there. Man was down here. They really didn't cross paths a ton. The gods were about their own thing, a myriad of different gods, and they be behaved very human-like and often very childish. There was jealousies, there was infighting, there was feuding amongst the gods. But the gods were out there, they were distant, they couldn't be known. A multiplicity of gods. John begins his argument very quickly by saying, no, there isn't gods, there is a god. One god. He goes on and says that Jesus is the beginning, that he is God, he is the creator of everything. He is a person. Note that it refers to him as he, and it also argues that he is the source of life. And this word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That word, word, in the Greek is, is loaded with cultural baggage or cultural interest. The word actually means he is the center. He is the logic. He is the reason is the meaning behind all things. It's interesting, I was reading this last week, 2022, did you know that most years they look back and say, what was the most important word to describe the past year? So 2022, what, what are the words that the dictionaries picked for describing our year? Well, the first one is this, it's gaslighting. Merriam-Webster said that gaslighting was the word of the year. Gaslighting is defined this way, the act or practice of grossly misleading someone, especially for a personal advantage. Word of the year for our culture, gaslighting. By the way, if you get in an argument with anybody and you're discussing the facts and what's true and not true, to get out of that argument without being accused of gaslighting someone is nearly impossible. Because if somebody disagrees, well then by definition you're gaslighting them. Second word, this one was actually voted. Oxford Dictionaries came up with goblin mode. How many of you guys have been throwing that term around in 2022? Not me. Never heard of it before. But goblin mode defined is simply this. 
It's a slang term referring to a type of behavior which is unapologetically self-indulgent, lazy, slovenly, or greedy, typically in a way that rejects social norms and expectations. So two major dictionaries, two words to describe 2022, gaslighting and goblin mode. I would argue that we are a pretty selfish and self-absorbed culture. Would you agree by the choice of our words for 2022? It's interesting. Logos, this is a word that John chose carefully. The Greek philosophers, they looked at nature. And what they had observed is as they looked at nature, the world around them, they saw order, they saw balance, they saw harmony, they saw structure, and they determined that there had to be a God or some sort of cosmic force behind it. So so they referred to this cosmic force, this purpose or meaning in the universe as logos. They defined it as an impersonal divine structure to the universe. From the word logos, we get our word logic. There has to be some sense. There has to be a logic that drives everything, a purpose. And they believed that if they could align with that purpose, life would go better for them. So they had all these philosophical ideas of how you could align with the logos of the universe. Uh, The Epicureans, they pursued pleasure. The Stoics, they were like, just roll with everything. Don't let anything bother you. Others were like, save the whales, leave the world in a better place than you found it. All of these different things, it starts to kind of sound familiar to us 2,000 years ago, doesn't it? It's interesting. Each generation tries to figure out what is the logic to this world. Christian Smith, he is the professor of sociology at the University of Notre Dame. He's written a couple books. One of them is soul searching and the other is soul in translation. He's also written a bunch of different articles and it's interesting what he does or what he believes is true and is found through his research to be true of the young adults that he has the opportunity to teach at Notre Dame. Too often we dismiss college kids as fleeing all morality or all social constraint. He says it's actually the opposite. What he's found in working with college students is, well, well, three things that they actually have very, very strong moral convictions. Those moral convictions might not agree with their parents' moral convictions, but they have very strong moral convictions. The convictions that they form are relative. They're moral relativists. They are personal specific, that each person gets to decide their own morals. And they're also culturally relative. Each culture, you're going to come up with different choices in morality. Each person chooses, each culture chooses, and everyone has the right to decide. They also believe that morality is self-evident. If you ask them why they believe something is right or wrong, they'll tell you, well, it just is. So you take these three concepts that they have strong moral convictions, but morality is relative, and it is self-evident And he says the problem with not just young people, but our culture today and the way that we value and determine morality is he says it's inconsistent and incoherent. You can't apply it. You can't explain what is morally right or wrong. Let me give you an example. So over the last month or so, I've been watching a lot of soccer. It was World Cup. Do you guys know where the World Cup took place? Qatar. Very, very different culture than the cultures from a lot of the other countries that were represented in the competition. So you had people coming from Brazil and the United States and all of this descending upon Qatar, which had 
very strict views on many things, the consumption of alcohol, the way that you dress, the way that you conducted yourself in public, all of these different things, the roles of women. And so during this thing, Qatar came under scrutiny because it's like, well, why in the world can't you drink? Or why in the world are women limited and they can't do this and they can't do this? Well, to the moral relativists from the United States, you're like, well, you can't say that because who are you to decide what's morally right or wrong for somebody from a different culture? And they're like, oh yeah, we hadn't thought of that. Not a lot of answer when everything is relative to make any judgments about anything. And this gets so absurd that our country's actually lost. They've lost all sight of the truth. I'll give you an example. Sometimes I miss stories between the holidays because I'm busy with other things. I hope you guys didn't miss this. If you've been reading about what happened in uh, New York, they have a congressman-elect by the name of George Santos. Have any of you guys followed this story? Who hasn't followed this story? Okay, it's amazing. I just got to tell you. So he ran for office. He got elected. He will be in Congress next year. But the New York Times published an expose on him, and they said, well, he claimed that he graduated from college. He never graduated from college. He said that he worked for Goldman Sachs. He didn't work for Goldman Sachs. He said that he owned 13 properties, that he was a landlord, but he's not a landlord. He's barely a tenant. He's in debt everywhere. He said he had a non-criminal record, but he has a criminal record in Brazil. Most interesting, he, he lied about his ethnicity. And when questioned on this, he said, when I said I was Jewish, I didn't mean I was Jewish. I meant that I was Jewish. Like, you can't make this stuff up. He'll be in Congress in January. When confronted by the New York Times, he says, well, what are you charging me with? So I embellished my resume a little bit. What's the big deal? We, we live in a society that is lost through relativism, any understanding of what is central, what is logical, what is reasonable, what is true. And what John does in the first few verses of his gospel is he takes the entire philosophical thought of his day and he turns it on its ear he says what what if the logic what if the reason what if what is central to everything what if all of that was a person someone who could be known a god that's not far off a god that's revealed himself a god that desires relationships so in the first four verses of his gospel, he is going after the entire cultural thought process of his day. And he's saying, no, 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 I'm going to tell you about my friend, this Jesus. He's God. He's the logic behind the universe. He's the creator of the universe. He is central. He is a person. And he desires relationship. The next radical claim that he makes, well, let's look in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I, I, I want to stop just real quickly. That word, the darkness has not overcome it. Some of your translations might say overcome. Some older translations or different translations say the darkness didn't understand it. It's been translated both ways in our English Bible, 
And the reason that it's been translated both ways is because it can mean both things. It can say the world didn't comprehend it, they didn't understand it, or they haven't overcome it. The, the best kind of synonym that I could give you, which would be a good translation for this word in English, is master. If, if an intruder broke into my house and, and I mastered him, that means I overcame him. If I master a subject, that means that I understand that subject. Well, well that's what this word is, that he didn't overcome them, that they didn't under, comprehend, and it didn't overcome the light of the gospel. And then he says this in verse 6, there was a man sent, for God, sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Are you seeing a repeated word in those verses? Light. Like seven times in six verses, John refers to Jesus first as the logos, or the center of everything, and then secondly, his light. So much could be developed on this analogy of what it means that Jesus is light. Can I just give you the basic one that seems most clear to me from the text? It's clarity. Jesus brings clarity to life. Isaiah 9.2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. That's the prophecy of Isaiah. Well, what is that light? Well, he'll tell you in four verses in Isaiah 9, 6. He says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The, the prophecy that we all know referring to Jesus, Messiah. Jesus is the light that comes into darkness. Jesus himself in John 8, verse 12, will declare, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, Darkness can mean different things. We, we can talk about darkness and I can say, well, um, last Saturday on Christmas Eve, I was in a dark place. I don't like it when we cancel Christmas Eve services. That's my favorite service of the year. But I don't know if you remember, it's so easy, we forget. Now that we're through winter and we're into spring, do you remember what last week was like? <laughs> Like, like it was blizzard and it was like, don't go on the roads. And I'm in a dark place. That means I'm down. I'm depressed. I can also say, my kids can be talking about something. I walk in, what are we talking about? And they'll be saying something like, I'm in the dark. Like, I don't know what's going on in this conversation. It means that I, I don't understand. But, but the primary meaning for darkness in this case is the idea that you lack clarity when he says seven times in six verses that Jesus is the light of the world, he's the one that says he's the one that brings clarity. He's the one that makes sense. Do you, do you ever just walk around and stumble in darkness? Have you ever experienced that? I was thinking back when I was, this is a story my, my, my buddy Brett could tell on me. We were in junior high. It was Halloween. We were going to our first like junior high big date. And we were all excited because we were meeting at church. We were going to a haunted house. And the girls in the junior high that we were, you know, hoping to hold their hands. And we were already sweaty about the whole thing. That was, that was going to happen. And we were running through the basement of the church. I knew the church inside and out. I'd grown up in this church. And coming out from under a door was a little bit of light. It was shining on the wall. I thought that was the turn. It wasn't. The turn was 10 feet further. What I saw was just the light on. I just ran face first into a concrete block wall running through a church in the darkness, thinking that I knew where I was, but I was off. 
I was the horror show that night, the big egg on the head for Halloween. But listen, when you go through and you're stumbling in darkness, Proverbs 8, 4 verse 18 says this, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So John is making an argument in his preamble to his book. He's saying that Jesus is the logos. He's central to everything. And he's also saying that he's the light. And without him, life is meaningless. We are just stumbling in the darkness. And we are not connected to the logic that makes the entire world and universe operate. Two claims. He's central to everything. Jesus brings clarity. Two options. And remember, the big idea was that Jesus demands a choice. You have two options with Jesus. See, see Jesus demands a choice. Leonardo da Vinci, he doesn't demand a choice. Elon Musk doesn't demand a choice. Think what you will. Jesus, the center figure in all of human history demands a choice because of who he claimed that he was. He is either God or he is not. He is either clarity or he is creating confusion. He is either logical or he is irrational based off the claims that he made in his very own teaching. He is unique. Jesus demands a choice. Choice number one, you can reject. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They rejected the logic. They rejected the clarity. To, to, to know him means that the world didn't recognize him. When, when Jesus appeared, he wasn't what most people were looking for. The text says he was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Let, let me just explain something to you. When it says he came to his own, I believe that includes us because he owns us because he created us. But specifically in the text, he's talking about the Jewish people. And what the Jewish people were looking for was they were looking for a Messiah that would free them from oppression. They were looking for somebody that would overthrow Rome. So when Jesus came to the earth humbly, though he was logic, though he was light, they didn't recognize him. He wasn't what they were looking for. They had attached themselves to a, re, a situation of morality, and what they claimed, what they wanted, was to be freed from oppression. But the thing that was really oppressing, was causing the oppression in their lives, was the religious system. See, they believed they could bridge the gap between themselves and God by becoming their own savior, by doing enough good works that they would become acceptable to God. And they were oppressed by the law itself because they couldn't measure up to its demands. They also tended to oppress others. They would judge themselves to religious leaders and other people's performance against their own. And what happens over the course of the first few chapters in the book of John, just a spoiler alert, John is going to tear down religion in his Gospels. In chapter 2, Jesus will walk in and cleanse the temple. In chapter 3, he'll talk to a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus and say, you got to start all over, man. you got to be born again. And in chapter 4, he will minister to a woman at a well 
and set the stage that he isn't here to help those or to save those that are righteous, but he came to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus is actually the end of religion as we know it, but you can reject him. And, and I just want to explain to you that in rejecting Jesus, that's not usually just becoming hostile and adversarial. I had this great idea for an analogy this morning that I was going to use. I was going to bring a candle up here with Jesus as the light of the world, and I was going to have them kill every light in the room. See, see, because the problem is when there's a candle that's shining and there's lightness surrounding it, it's very hard to see the candle. Would you agree? Rejecting Jesus is not just snuffing out the candle. That's typically not the way that we do it. The way that we do it is we become, we become distracted by other lights. Last week as I was watching the um, Christmas um, uh, service, not at church but at home, feeling quite grumpy, there were four Advent candles, candles right here. Do you guys remember? And, and I think it was Taylor was lighting one of the Advent candles. And I'm looking at Kristen and I'm going, are the other candles lit? And she goes, yeah, they're lit. No, 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 no they're not lit. And so we were debating whether the other three candles were lit or whether they were not. His cal, or his Taylor was going to, to light the fourth candle. And the problem was the perspective was coming off of that camera there. And back here was a white screen. And the white screen with the white candles up front, you couldn't see the flame. You couldn't distinguish it from the light that was coming behind it. Does that make sense? See, see, the way that we make the decision to reject Jesus is not that we become adversarial or hostile to the gospel. It just gets drowned out by other pursuits, other things, by indifference, by overcrowding. The second choice you can make is to receive. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. A couple things, just so you finish your notes. The first thing we see there is relationship. It's family. It's children. It speaks to relationship, to, know, to be known and to know. We, we spent Christmas with our kids, our grandkids, that's family time. Those are the people that in holidays that we want to be with, with our family. It speaks to relationship. It becomes our right to become children of God. I want you to see what it says next in verse 13. How do we get there who were born not of blood? Can't be born into it. If your parents are Christians, that doesn't make you a Christian. Your nationality doesn't make you a Christian. You don't have to become Jewish. It's not a nationality thing. It's not a family thing. It goes on and says, not by the will of the flesh. So you can't be born into it. You can't work yourself into it. You can't try harder. You can't do more. You can't do it by making yourself acceptable to God. No religious system will get you there. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. As your pastor, I can't want this for you more than you want it. Parents, have you learned this lesson, some of you, about your kids? You can't want them to be saved more than they want it. You can't make the choice for someone else. 
So they were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no man may boast. Titus 3, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You don't get to praise, you don't get the praise when somebody else has paid your debt. You don't get the acclamation when it's somebody else that's turned on the lights. And he says in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John quickly just paints a picture all the way back to Exodus 33. Moses tells God, show me your glory. John says, that request has been answered. It's answered in Jesus Christ. And he dwelt among us. That word actually means tabernacled again. A word chosen specifically by John. So much meaning, so much richness. God with us. A place where we can dwell with God. Let me close with this. Jesus demands a choice. 2023... In about 12 months, we're going to be looking back, oh man, that year went fast, right? And the question is, will 2023 be like other years or will we actually see change in 2023? There will be some in this room who say, yeah, there's some things that I would like to change. But the choice that Jesus demands is not that you acknowledge him, not that you recognize him or even believe in his claims. The claim that Jesus makes, the demand that he puts on you is, I'm the Logos, I'm central. I'm the logic behind everything that you do, and I'm the one that brings clarity to your life. Will you put me in that position? Will you give me first place? And there's some here who will say, yeah, I really, really want to change, but as the year goes on, you're going to get distracted by other lights, man. You're going to be chasing after other things. And quite honestly, we all kind of want the same things, right? We want to be happy. We want to be satisfied. We want to feel safe. We want to be known. We want to be loved. And you'll start to look for those things down other paths. And you will stumble. You will get in your own way. You will lack clarity. And you will become the very obstacle to achieving the peace, the safety, the feeling of love, the feeling of satisfaction, and the feeling of joy that you so long for because all of those pursuits lead to the dead end because they're not central, they're not logic, they're not the reason for everything. My prayer is that there will be others in this room who start this room and say, yeah, I want 2023 to be different. Jesus is not just going to be someone that I maybe talk about or someone that I maybe pray to. I want him to be central. I want him to be primary. I want to wake up every day and say, Jesus, what would you have me do? And what you'll find is that longing for satisfaction, that longing for joy, that longing for love, that longing for everything you've been looking for will be found in that one choice that Jesus demands. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this book. I thank you for this start. And uh, I'm excited about what you're going to do through this series. Father, we live in a world that is changing quickly and we need to change as well.
Father, give us the courage to uh, put you in first place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.